excited about the weeks that are to come. Imagine this, when we come together a week from today, next Sunday morning, it'll be the Christmas season. Really will be. If you need to know how many shopping days are left, just uh, make an appointment with me after the service, and I'd be glad to have that discussion with you. But uh, we will next Sunday morning begin uh, thinking about Christmas through the Scripture, and we'll start a sermon series, and then we have a lot of great things coming up over the next month or so on Sunday nights. Uh, One of the things will be a Christmas-themed Lord's Supper service. I've spoken with our deacons about that, and we look forward to that. So great things are coming. Uh, This morning in my message, I mentioned just as uh, an illustration an interesting event that happens in the life of Christ that we find in one of the Gospels. Now, I'm curious this evening to hear how you respond. How many of you, let me ask you this question first, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to vocalize it. How many of you have a favorite gospel? Now, I mean the gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How many of you have one of those that you would identify as your favorite gospel? All right. I see a few hands. Some of you looking at me a little iffy. But those of you that can raise a hand, I'm going to count to three. And here's what I want you to do. Just... Out loud, share with everybody around you which of the four is your favorite gospel. One, two, three. Well, somebody wanted to stress Luke. I heard that very clearly. But I think across the room, what I heard is what I typically hear when I ask that question, and that is my favorite gospel is the gospel of John. How many of you did that? How many of you said John? Yeah, see, I'm right. Uh, that's the. <laughs> that looks like, from my vantage point, the uh, perspective I have here, it looks like the majority in the room. So, listen, if the Gospel of John is your favorite gospel, you're in good company tonight because it's my favorite gospel. And not just because it's where John 3.16 is located, but... It's so rich theologically, and honestly, a lot of our doctrine that we practice as a Baptist church uh, just comes straightforwardly out of the book of John. One of my favorite features of the book of John are those I am statements. Did you know that seven times in the book of John... Jesus says, I am something. For instance, he begins at a passage that we're going to look at tonight in John's Gospel, chapter 6, and he says, I am the bread of life. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, He says that I am the door, the door through which the sheep enter to be rightly related to the Father. 
Very similar to that, also in John's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. We love John eleven twenty five, where Jesus looks at Martha after Lazarus had already died. Lazarus, that is, had already died. And he says, what? You remember? I am the resurrection and the life. And then in the upper room in John 14, when Jesus is there with his apostles, after doubting Thomas, asked him about where he was going. He didn't know where he was going, so how could he know the way? Jesus told him that he was what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But he puts it like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 15, you find the last I am statement from Jesus in the Gospel of John. And he says, I am the true vine. And so I've always been fascinated with those rich I am statements from this wonderful gospel. Now, we don't do any disservice to any of the other gospels. Those of you who are on my wagon and you say the gospel of John is your favorite, it doesn't mean that it's any more important than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but it just resonates with us. Now, who was my Luke guy? Somebody really loved, all right, a few Luke guys out there. And I understand why you love the gospel of Luke. Uh, Let me give you just a little something else as we're uh, approaching John chapter 6 in just a moment. When we think about the four Gospels, we call the first three as they're in our order in the English New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels or the similar Gospels. You can find that very easily when you compare them that you have the Gospel of Mark, which is the smallest, and it sort of becomes an outline that later Luke would take and add his recollections and reflections about Jesus to it. And then, of course, Matthew would come along and he would do the same thing. And it's a beautiful thing how God gives us all these different perspectives of the Lord Jesus. So here's Mark, again, the earliest of the Gospels as they were originally written. Most New Testament scholars agree that the Gospel of Mark is really the reflections and the memories of Peter. When John Mark had come to Peter and he was his associate and stayed by Peter's side in the latter days of his life, uh, a lot of people really believe that It is actually the reminiscing of Peter that Mark writes down, and it becomes that very simple, uh, action-packed gospel. And so it was really directed to the Romans, so it has that unique perspective to it. Mark's a great gospel for boys, for young men. Because it's just boom, 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 miracle after miracle, power shot after power shot. Uh, My boys, for instance, love, both of them would have told you that they loved most the gospel of Mark. And then Luke would come as a Gentile writer. Luke is the only Gentile that writes 
one of the Gospels. And not only is he a Gentile, but he's a physician. So a lot of the details about physical things, details about miracles, much detail about the passion of Christ is written by Luke because he just has an eye for those physical details as a physician. And then Matthew is the most Jewish of the gospel writers. And so he presents Jesus as a first century Jew. And then John comes along and just sort of does his own thing. And you can tell by reading through the gospel of John that here is a man who had a very close relationship with Jesus. You see that borne out in the pages of all of the Gospels, that there was that unique, close relationship between Jesus and John. And so John seems like he has even more insight into what I said a moment ago, those rich theological things. And you pick up on that as you read through his Gospel. Well, again... The, one of the most rich of all of those things are these great I am statements. And this morning I referred to John chapter 6 where Jesus makes that first I am statement. And in a lot of ways it's the most interesting and also the most profound. So here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to approach this message a little differently Rather than zeroing in on a verse or a paragraph of Scripture, I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open to the Gospel of John, and we'll look at several different verses that come at us from John chapter 6. Mr. Joe asked me earlier, Brother Allen, what do you want me to put on the screen? I said, good luck. (laughs) Because I'm going to show you a lot of these different verses and make some points and and hopefully some application from them that we can take with us tonight. But let's consider what Jesus meant when he said, I am the bread of life. So John's Gospel chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 31 and then read down through verse 35. The Bible says, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. And Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And they said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Make sure that you pay close attention to what the people are asking for in verse 34. They really don't know what they're asking for. They think they know. And I'll share more about that with you in just a moment. But notice that Jesus says, it's not about the manna. It's not about the physical bread that God gave the ancient Israelites as they were in their wilderness wanderings, but I'm giving better bread than that. The best bread 
that God gives is that bread that comes down from heaven that gives life to the world. And so no wonder they react the way they do. We want that bread. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Lord, thank you for just the blessing of being in this place tonight, of worshiping you together, and thank you, Father, that our Savior is who he says he is. And tonight, Lord, we reflect on this great statement where he says that he is the bread of life. Father, thank you that those of us who have been saved by your grace, we know this bread. We've tasted of this bread. This bread has filled us. This bread has saved us. This bread gives us meaning and purpose in life. Father, I pray tonight as we look through several verses of this chapter of Scripture that our hearts would just be on fire with you and for you, for your glory. And I ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And amen. When you take a look at the I am the bread of life statement, you have to know the context of the statement. In fact, this is one of those situations where you could think about it and you could very quickly say and accurately say what a difference a day makes. Because this particular scene in the life of Christ and the people who were around him is one of those great scenes that happens in Scripture that proves that Jesus Christ is not just another prophet, although he was a prophet, not just a priest, although he was and is our priest, but it proves that he is God, God in the flesh. You see, the day before Jesus makes this, I am the bread of life statement, Jesus did something incredible and miraculous. He took the loaves and the fish and He blessed it supernaturally, multiplied it, and everybody got their fill. Now, you can go home tonight and you can read the earlier part and understand what happened on the day before, but there was a big crowd together. Scripture says that there were 5,000 men And that doesn't take into account all the women and the children. Now, ladies and kids, I hate to tell you this, but back then in the first century in Jesus' day, when they counted a crowd, they only count the men. Now, I'm thankful that y'all count. And I promise you, when you come to Bible Baptist Church, we're going to count you. But in that time and in that day and age, that's, that's how they counted people. They counted the men that were present. And so some people estimate that not only were there all those many men there, but when you take into account the ladies and the children who could have been there, the crowd may have surpassed 
20,000 people. Now, I want you to imagine that. 20,000 people coming together out in the Galilean countryside. Now, think about a crowd like this. We could go to a basketball game up the road in Rupp Arena, and if it's filled to capacity, there would be over 20,000 people in that arena. That's a pretty big crowd, isn't it? Big crowd. And so imagine what the atmosphere must have felt like out there in the Galilean countryside with 20,000 people coming together for a purpose. That purpose was, again, to hear the Lord Jesus. And they were so enthralled with His teaching that they stayed there through lunchtime and everybody was getting hungry. And they wondered how they were going to feed the multitudes that day. And the disciples, the apostles, as it were, began to talk about it. And they figured there's no way it could happen. They didn't have enough money. There wouldn't be enough resources. So Jesus just took that little boy's lunch and he blessed it. He multiplied it. Everybody ate. And I want you to remind me tonight, how much did they eat? They ate until they were full. Like you and I are probably going to do on Thursdays. They, they just ate until they were absolutely full, till they couldn't eat anymore. And I want you to remember how God demonstrates Himself. You know, there's something significant with the number 12 in Scripture. You know, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles. And remember, after Jesus multiplied that meal, everybody ate until they were full. The Bible says that when they gathered up the leftovers, how many baskets of food were left? Twelve baskets. Again, just another sign that God Almighty was in the world and that He was working among people. They got excited about it. They were so excited that there was now a teacher in their midst who not only taught them with authority and taught them with strength and explained things spiritually to them that they had never heard before, but now they had somebody who would feed them. Now, remember this. Food was much more difficult in the first century. It was harder to come by. They didn't have refrigerators. They could pack things with salt and preserve them that way, but that would only go so far. But their food typically had to be fresh. They ate a lot of seafood, a lot of the tilapia there from the Sea of Galilee, and even some saltwater fish that would be brought in over from the Mediterranean. But Typically, it had to be fresh, and so the effort that they had to put out for their food was constant. And so you can just imagine how exciting this was that they had this Jesus, this miracle man, this miracle worker, who could just take a few little things, say a prayer over it, 
and supernaturally there would be all of this food and leftovers to boot. They were excited. The people were excited. The apostles were excited. Just imagine being one of the twelve on that day. Just imagine being somebody in the know. (laughs) You know, here's this Jesus. He had taught in a wonderful way, and then he did this great miracle. I imagine the apostles really thought they were somebody. So everybody was excited. The people, the crowd was excited. The apostles were excited, but that was yesterday. And here's what I want you to see about what we're looking at tonight. Jesus changes things up. Jesus didn't do the same thing that he had done the day before. It was a different day, and what a difference a day makes. I want you to notice as we survey a few of these verses tonight that the day made a great difference in the revelation of Jesus. And what I mean by that is not the book of Revelation, but the way Jesus revealed himself. So the day before, Jesus reveals himself as a physical need meter. He met the needs of those Galileans, many of whom were probably hungry. But today, he reveals himself not as someone who provides for physical needs, although he does that. But on this day, he reveals himself as someone who provides for needs that are greater than, than physical needs, and that would be spiritual, spiritual needs. So yesterday it was about physical food. Today it's about spiritual food. And I want you to look at a few of these verses with me. Look at verse 25 of John chapter 6. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, And said, Verily, verily, truthfully, truthfully, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. And he encourages them here in verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you for him hath God the Father sealed. And they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And look at what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. So Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. Jesus looks at the crowd that reassembles that next day, And he says, you know what? I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. You're not coming to me because you saw the miracle and because you understand that only God could do that miracle. Beloved, we know that, right? When you think about the miracle of the fish and the loaves, who but God? Nobody else. But Jesus says to them, you're not coming to me today because you saw the miracle and because of the miracle, you know that I am the Messiah, you know that I'm God, but you're coming back to me for food. 
You're coming back to me for bread. Jesus says, that's not the kind of bread you need to labor for. That's not what ought to interest you most. Now notice Jesus isn't saying that we don't have to have our physical needs met. He knows that. But Jesus is saying there's something that's even more important than your daily bread. There's something that you need more than that. And I'm the one that can give it to you. Look at verse 29 again. This is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. They said therefore unto Him in verse 30, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Can you imagine that? They saw the miracle of the fish and the loaves yesterday. Was that not enough? But they ask him, what are you going to do for us now, Jesus? That's exactly what they're asking in verse 30. Jesus, you did a great thing yesterday. Now give us one more. Can you outdo what you did yesterday? What will you give us? And then in verse 31, they have the audacity to compare Jesus to Moses. And they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And this gets into the text that we read earlier. Jesus truthfully says to them, Moses gave you that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life into the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread. And then Jesus says the defining thing there in verse 35, I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. I want you to look at a couple more verses. Turn the page probably, or look on down to verse 40. Jesus says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus is saying, I'm offering you something better than bread and fish today. I'm offering you eternal, everlasting life. Yesterday, he met their physical need. Today, being the master teacher, he uses that as an object lesson, and he says, I'm offering you something better than fish and loaves. I'm offering you eternal life. When Jesus says... I am the bread of life. I want you to understand, when you take in that bread, Jesus does what? He gives you eternal life. That's what He says. I am giving you eternal life. That's what kind of life you're going to have. And God will raise those who take in this bread up at the last day. May I say to you tonight, that I'm thankful that I can report to you that I never did one thing to earn my salvation. And may I also say to you that I'm thankful that I don't do anything now to keep 
my salvation. As the old preachers used to say, if salvation were something money could buy, the rich would live and the poor would die. If salvation was something that could be earned, then those who had the means to earn it, they'd live forever, but those who didn't have those means would die and go to hell. I love what Jesus says in the next I am statement. I referred to it a moment ago. But if you look at at John chapter 10, I want you to notice that Jesus has something great to say in verse 27 after he had said that he is the good shepherd. In verse 27 of John 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Look at verse 28. And I give them, what kind of life, church? Eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Jesus says about His being the bread of life, this bread will sustain you spiritually forever. Then He reiterates that in John chapter 10. And He says that my sheep, they know me, they hear me, and I give to them everlasting life. Let me just say this very quickly about Jesus being the bread that gives us eternal life. You see, if we were going to be saved one moment, and two weeks later we were going to lose that salvation, Jesus would have said, I give them two-week life. Or if we were going to be saved one day, and ten years down the road lose that salvation... Jesus would have said, I give them ten year life. That's not what He says. Thanks be to God that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And then later He would say, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep. I give to them not one year life, not ten year life, not seventy year life. I give to them eternal life. And so that's what Jesus is teaching the people in in His self-revelation of that next day. I gave you bread yesterday. You looked like you were a hungry crowd. But you lived before yesterday and you'll live today and tomorrow. You'll find your physical bread. I want to give you something better than that. I want to give you spiritual bread that will nourish you into everlasting or eternal life. Look at verse 53 back in John 6. This is where some of our friends have difficulty in understanding the passage. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do you think eternal life is a theme in the book of John? You know, all the way back to uh, John 3.16, Jesus says, He who believes in me, 
will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then it keeps coming up over and over again. So he says, the one who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, I will give him eternal life, raise him up at the last day. My flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live and I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. In a few days from now, as I told you earlier, we'll take together in the month of December the Lord's Supper. Beautiful time together. I look forward to that. I hope you do too. Beautiful time together as we come around in fellowship and observe the Lord's table. And when we take the bread and we take the cup at the Lord's table, what are we doing? We're commemorating, right? We're remembering the greatest gift that God has ever given, His Son, Jesus Christ, that lived in the flesh, bled out His life's blood for the remission of our sins. I'm thankful that when I, don't, when I take the cup and when I take of the bread, you know, I am not ingesting the body and blood of Jesus. We have friends that believe that. The doctrine is called transubstantiation. Our Catholic friends, they, they truly believe that when they eat of the bread and they drink of the cup, that internally within them, that literally becomes the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't mean to be irreverent about something that's significant spiritually, but I would just say to you, that's gross. And that's not what Jesus is teaching us here in John chapter 6. You have to understand that when He talked about the blood, when He talked about the body, He's talking about all that He is. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, friend, if you want eternal life, if you want to die and then live forever in glory with God, as we sung that sweet song about heaven earlier in our service, if that's what you want, Jesus is saying, you have to take in everything I am what I'm saying to you. You have to process it. You have to believe it. Spiritually, you have to make it yours. Yesterday, He fed them physical bread. Today, He reveals that He is spiritual bread. What a difference a day makes, not only in the way Jesus reveals Himself, but what a difference a day makes in the way the people react. I want you to notice that yesterday they were so excited that they actually wanted to make Jesus their king. I challenge you, go home and read what happened that day when he supernaturally dealt out that feast. They got so excited about it, they tried to grab Jesus and say, we're going to do it right now, we're going to make you our 
king. That's how much they were into Jesus. But when Jesus gets down to the brass tacks, when he gets down to the bottom line, and he says, you need to come to me for your spiritual needs more than you come to me for your physical needs. When that happens, they react very differently. Look at verse 41 of the text. Then the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. The word murmured. We don't hear that word often unless you have a heart condition. It's called a heart murmur. But it, it's, it's an onomatopoeic word. You know what that is. It's a word that sounds like what it is. You know, we say pow or clap. It's a word that sounds like what it is. And that's what murmur is. You can hear it, can't you? The crowd gathering around and Jesus was teaching them that he was the bread of life. And they begin murmuring. Did he say what I think he said? They murmured. They didn't believe him. Yesterday, they wanted to make him king. Today, they're having second thoughts. Look at verse 52. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're not understanding what Jesus is teaching here. Look down at verse 60. Scripture says, Many therefore of his disciples... When they heard this, look at what they said. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? So I want you to get what's happening here. It's not just the crowd. But now we're narrowing the focus down to the disciples, not the apostles. Remember this, when you read the Gospels, you have a crowd of people that will come along Jesus and try to listen to Him and get what he has to offer. That's the crowd. Then you have people who make some type of commitment to Jesus. Those are the disciples. And then the twelve are the apostles. So when he talks about the disciples, he's talking about people who continued to show up. The people who continued to be where Jesus was and continued to listen. And today they're saying, this is hard. Who can hear it? And it gets down to verse uh, 66 where John details for us, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Some people, when they don't get from God what they think they should have from God, they turn around and they go home. I want to tell you something tonight. God does not owe us anything. God has given us what we need and who we need in Jesus Christ. Beyond that, God doesn't owe us anything. That's what happened to the people. That next day when Jesus tried to teach them a deep teaching and they didn't get their bread, they didn't get their fish, Scripture says that day they turned around and they followed Him. They walked 
with him, Scripture says, no more. What a difference a day makes in the revelation of Jesus. It makes a great difference in the reaction of the people. But watch this as we close tonight. What a difference a day makes in the realization of the apostles. This is what I mentioned to you this morning. So people walk away. They say, you know, we, we want Jesus for what He will do for us physically. If He's not going to give us bread and fish anymore, we're going back. If He's getting deep in this teaching of us taking in the life that He has to offer us, we, we can't accept it. We're going back. And then verse 67, Jesus looks to the twelve. Remember what I told you, you have the crowd, the disciples, and now you have the apostles. He looks at the twelve and he asks them this question, will you also go away? Jesus looks at those who had given up great things given up their lives, walked away from their employment to follow Him. And He gives them an out right here. Are you going to go away too? As I said this morning, Simon Peter, (laughs) I love Peter. Don't you love Peter? I've told you before, I like Peter because I identify with him. Other people identify with Peter. Somebody had road rage tonight. Better be careful what you say. It might end up in a sermon. Just teasing. Just teasing. (laughs) I identify with Peter. Peter would have been one of those guys who got road rage. I get road rage. We all get there. Uh, I love MacArthur's book on 12 Ordinary Men. He wrote the chapter on Peter and he entitled it, Peter the Apostle with a Foot-Shaped Mouth. Pretty good, right? Peter, when he opened his mouth, a lot of times it was just to take one foot out and put the other one in. He looks at Peter as one of the apostles, one of the 12. He asks that question, are you going to go a way to Peter, frankly, is never any better than he is right here. Look at verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life, and we believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Church, God doesn't always give us what we think we deserve. Doesn't always come through the way we think that He should, but He knows best. And the bottom line is simply this. To whom else shall we go? Neighbors are kind. I love them, everyone. We get along in sweet accord. But when my soul needs manna from on high, where could I go but to the Lord?
Sing it with me. Where could I go? Oh, where could I go? Seeking a refuge for my soul. Needing a friend to save me in the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? Stand up, sing it louder. Where could I go? Oh, where could I go? Seeking a refuge for my soul. Needing a friend to save me in the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? Father, we thank you tonight that you are God and above you there is no one else. And thank you, Jesus, that in you we always have a refuge. And Father, in you we have eternal life. And Jesus, we have no one else to whom we can turn but you. And thank you, Lord, that you will always be there. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your word. Now, Father, I pray that if there's anyone who needs to respond to your word, however it might be, someone who might need to come to Jesus, someone who may need to rededicate his or her life, someone who may need to be restored, someone maybe, Lord, uh, for whom life has just been difficult. and They just want to step out tonight and say, I am coming again, declaring my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that when life gives us nowhere else to turn, that we can always turn to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.